Yeah. Okay. Welcome to the Rational Egoist. I'm your host, Michael Leibowitz. I've heard a lot of people talking about artificial intelligence, and some people think it's the greatest thing since sliced bread, and other people are afraid of it. Uh, some people are afraid it's going to take their jobs. Others are even afraid it's going to replace humans. Here to help us sort all this out is a software engineer with a background in financial applications. He's also written several pieces about artificial intelligence. Robert Blumen, welcome to the show. Thank you, Michael. Great to be here. Well, first of all, what exactly is artificial intelligence? Michael, I should preface this by saying, although I'm a software engineer, I'm not a specialist in AI. So I'll give you my take on it, but somebody okay. who's in that field might say something different. Okay. From looking at the word, artificial intelligence means something that is not a person, or I guess animals can be intelligent, but it's not a life form, and it, it can do things that we think require intelligence in order to do. Now, if you look at what do computers do, computers for a long time have been able to do things like solve mathematical equations. There's a program called Wolfram Alpha that can do higher mathematics like calculus. I'm not sure why that those things were not considered artificial intelligence because hmm. uh, I can assure you it does require intelligence to do calculus or solve an equation. Now, when the field of AI uh, was in the 70s or 80s. I knew some people who are working in that field. At the time, they were aiming at things known as expert systems, which would be a computer application that could do something that we think requires a human expert, like medical diagnosis. The way they were going about this was they, they started from the assumption that experts are people who know all the rules to take the data and reach a decision. They assumed if a doctor, you go to the doctor, he says, your lab test is this, you have this and this symptoms, here's your diagnosis. They would interview experts and try to find what are all the rules that you're using to reach the decision. They found this process was very frustrating because the experts would say, well, yeah, if there's this and this, but then maybe there's this other case where you don't follow that rule because it might go in this other direction. And they could never really pin down the experts on what were all the rules. And the systems that were built using rules turned out not to really be experts. They were kind of like beginner systems. Eventually, this field failed and they gave up. There's a book written by a Berkeley professor who might be a philosopher called What Computers Can't Do. He said their fundamental mistake was experts are not people who are very good at following rules. They may use rules and guidelines to get started, but then they understand all the exceptions and when the rules do or don't apply. And so the whole premise of the field was wrong. However, rule-based systems is an existing area of programming, and it does work very well in cases where you have a lot of rules and no exceptions. And there are plenty of cases like that, like for example, tax calculations, the uh, amount of tax you have to pay on an online purchase. There might be dozens, hundreds of rules that apply and you apply them and you get the right answer. But rule-based systems are not considered artificial intelligence today. 
Let me give you another example is web search. Now this is an interesting problem because if I went to web search back in the days when it was a relatively new technology, I enter my search term and I want to see what is the best document on the entire internet relating to that search term. Best document, that's kind of subjective as a matter of opinion. Google, the way they became the best search engine is they had an innovative way of solving this problem. They were able to score documents based on relevance, which would incorporate your search term in the document. If you search for some word replication, at least I know I want documents that have that word in it. Then they were able to rank content based on the amount of inbound links to the content from the rest of the internet. So they're saying the rest of the internet is gonna vote. And the people who are linking to your document are saying this is a really good document. So there was a lot of complexity in how they weighted the inbound links because they didn't give each link one vote. The founder, one of the founders, Google is able to solve this. It's called the page rank algorithm. It produced search results that many people liked in the sense that if I search for something, it will find something that I think is a pretty good result. I think that answer a question like, what is the best source of information on a topic is arguably intelligent behavior, but web search up until recently has not been considered artificial intelligence. Now they're starting to incorporate these large language models into web search, and now it is AI. But the PageRank algorithm was not AI. There are other things that uh, might or might not be AI, depending on who you ask. Like if I'm shopping, the web store would say, here's some great products you might want to buy based on your past purchasing history. Or on a streaming video service, here's some videos you might like to watch based on things you've already watched. I think that making good recommendations is arguably intelligent, but those things are kind of not called AI anymore. So what is called AI now are really hard tasks that you can't boil them down to a cut and dried uh, series of steps, like answer a question I have on any topic, record my speech and turn it into text, give me a ride across town. So this is an opinionated view. I think AI is a moving target and the definition, if there is one, is whatever new things computers have learned to do recently that are quite difficult to uh, describe how they're done. And it's more about that they use uh, this model where you have a training set and you train some software to do whatever the training set says. And that's more of how they do it. But I think the definition of AI has come to mean that. So what is an example of a technology that there's virtually no disagreement it is artificial intelligence, it, if there these, even is something? Yeah, I think everybody would say these large language models like chat GPT is a type of AI. And another one would be self-driving cars. Okay. So I mentioned at the outset that there, people have fears when it comes to, to artificial intelligence intelligence in your mind, are, are there any legitimate fears? And by legitimate, I don't mean have a very high uh, 
possibility of, of coming to fruition. I just mean that they're legitimate, that it, it could take place. The chances are better than nil. And if the, if it happened, then it would, would be bad. I don't follow closely the, the Doomer AI conversation. I heard another podcast last week where they were going through many of them that I hadn't heard of. So I'll give you one that I am aware of that personally is something I do fear, I think is based on a lot of data. In fact, I'll go back to, there was a movie some years ago called The Lives of Others. It was about surveillance in the Stasi regime in East Germany. The Stasi agent had to camp out in the attic of a house, get a reel-to-reel tape recorder, could record the dissident. If he wasn't there all the time, you would have to listen to the tapes. Another story in this vein, uh, FBI agent who spoke Turkish was in the Turkish investigation division. There were other agents who also spoke Turkish. Her boss did not. The agents would be given these surveillance tapes like phone wiretaps and told to listen to them. And if there's any criminal activity, then transcribe it. Her boss suspected some of the other Turkish agents were spies, asked her to re-listen to some of the audio tapes. And she said, yeah, there's definitely evidence of crimes going on and they other agents were telling you it was nothing. This is very labor intensive. You have a person, if it's hour long tape, takes an hour or more of somebody's time. And if they transcribed it, probably many hours. Now we have speech to text, which is pretty good. Works in a lot of different languages. Then the text can be fed into a language model and it can identify topics or certain trends in the conversation. There is an ongoing federal lawsuit now called Missouri v. Biden, in which a bunch of people are suing the executive branch for violating their First Amendment rights. They have a vast amount of evidence. They were able to get into discovery and, and get evidence from the executive branch. There's also, I'm a little mixed up on where all the evidence came of it, came from Twitter Files, which was a release Elon Musk directed of all the surveillance and censoring that Twitter had been doing. What has come out in this lawsuit and other research on this is a discovery of a vast series of interconnected government agencies, NGOs, and executives at social media companies, what some people have called the surveillance industrial complex. One of the things they were able to do, and there's a group at Stanford that I think was doing this, if I remember it all, they could train the language models on a specific narrative that they didn't like, which anything they don't like, they call it disinformation. Like if you said masks don't work, or you said the COVID vaccine doesn't stop transmission, which pretty much everyone now acknowledges to be true, including drug companies, but that was flagged as misinformation. They could show the AI a limited number of samples of a narrative. They could train it to identify that narrative. And I don't know if they did exactly this, but it's certainly possible is every single social media post could be run through these AIs. And if it has a hundred disinformation narratives, it's looking for it to say, ha, ah, Michael, you just posted something that matches narrative number 42. And we're gonna either suppress it, prevent it from trending or uh, otherwise censor it. That is a thing that is happening. And I think we should be afraid of that. 
So there are some risks. I mean, it's like nuclear energy. Once you learn how to use it, it, it can be a very good thing, but in the wrong hands, it can end up being a very bad thing. Most so, things can be put to good or bad. Use. Yeah, exactly. So what are some of the good uses that AI can be used for? I mean, a self-driving car to me sounds fantastic. A lot of people are, are afraid of it, but to me, it seems great. I mean, that's just one thing. But I, I have to think there's other benefits of it. Otherwise, why bother? One kind of mundane example is if you call your financial institution, they ask you to speak your credit card number. They might say, well, what are you calling about? You say, I want to make a deposit, and they'll route you to the right person. I looked up the cost of hiring a person to take your call. It could be 3 to $6.00 all costs that any business has are ultimately paid by the customer somewhere. They have to put it on a fee they charge you, or if it's a credit card, they're going to charge it into the fees they charge the merchant and the merchant's going to charge it. But in some way, so if over the course of your life, you're saving three to $6 every time you call a financial institution, that's a, a not a life-changing benefit, but it's a benefit. Sure. And it enables these companies to have 24 by seven service for some things, whereas otherwise they'd have to staff up call centers all around the world. So that not the most earth shattering thing, but that's a benefit. Sure. Um, I'll say in my work as a software engineer, I'm often running into questions. I have the stuff that I'm good at, but all the time you run into things that you don't particularly know a lot about and you could spend a lot of time reading documentation. Often when I read documentation, I can't easily find the answer that I need. I found if I ask chat GPT a good question, it will tell me something that's usually helpful, not always correct, but close enough that it gets me going. So that's another use. Right, well, with all technology, like. There's always this fear, and it goes back at least a few hundred years, maybe thousands, where people fear that the newest technology is going to put them out of a job. They're, you know, they're going to be unemployed because it's whatever the, the automobile is going to replace the horse. Who knows? But what about the benefits? Like you said, cheaper products, freeing up time, more convenience. The benefits that we get from technology seem to me to be extreme, I and mean, we get a lot of them. So to, to me, it's worth the risk. I don't see of getting to a certain point of technological advancement and saying, now it's enough. Now we don't have to go any further because it, it just seems like it benefits our lives. And I don't see why AI would be any different. Am I wrong about this? Is there a reason it could be different? Depends on how you tally up the costs and benefits. You might say that the risk of censorship outweighs any benefits you get from any other things. It is probably true that even if people were afraid of AI and figured out how to ban it, that the censors would keep using it. So I don't know if there's a world where we get the benefits without at least some of the costs. Sure. And that, that's with most human behavior anyways. So what, what made me want to have you on the show is I read an article that you wrote that tied this topic of AI into... Ludwig von Mises's critique of socialism, and also to the with what you know the Great Reset. 
not more than a couple of days can go by when I'm looking at social media, when I don't come across some claim about the great reset, some fear about it, some talk about how evil it is. And from what I understand, one of the ideas in the great reset or one of the fears or whatever, is that the elites are going to use artificial intelligence to replace your everyday guy so that the elites can sit back and have AI serve them. Why is that illegitimate? Because I thought you made a hell of an argument about this. So I really would like you to explain it to my audience. Yeah. Should uh, Is your audience familiar with Mises' critique of uh, socialism? Should we start with that? Sure. I mean, a lot of them are. Some of them might not be. So you might as well, you know, get into it a little bit. Yeah. Well, he was looking at the tradition of socialist thought in the West, which goes back hundreds of years, perhaps. This was in 1920. A common characteristic of all of the socialist utopian thinking was a centrally owned system in which all capital goods would be owned by the state. And the state, therefore, would be in charge of producing everything. So Mises, he, he said, this is not possible to do because in order to decide what to produce and how to produce, there's almost infinite range of alternatives, not only uh, in larger scale questions like should we have more shoes and fewer houses or more bicycles, but even the very detailed feature of a bicycle or a shoe could have a certain number of shoes but are they men's shoes, ladies' shoes, athletic shoes, hiking shoes? What size should we make them more durable? If they're made out of stronger material, that might be more costly. And so that material is not available to use for clothing. Where the goods get distributed? Who makes them? Even if we agreed on the goods, there are a lot of different production methods that some might use more energy, some might require more space, some might require more people. There's the value of time. Should we have people work three shifts, 24 by seven, to get the product out faster, but maybe you have to compensate people more for the bad hours. The way that these decisions are made in a market is, Mises uses the term economic calculation. That private owners of businesses look at market prices, they form a, a view about, I think I can make this product and I can sell it for more in terms of money than what it costs me to make it. If their plan or their objective works out, then they make a profit. If it doesn't work out, they earn, uh, they, they suffer losses. Now, why are these market prices good and meaningful numbers to use? economic calculation. The reason is that the price of any productive asset in the market, it's established by a competitive bidding process among many different firms. If you go out and look for a job, you hopefully will have some good fortune, have multiple offers. But uh, even if you don't have multiple offers, you have some idea, well, here's what I think I can get. And you might turn down an offer that's less than that, hold out for a better offer. There's always competition among businesses to put different types of labor and capital sure. goods to use. And the way businesses look at it 
is what is the economic value I can get from an asset? And I might pay up to that much for it, but not more, because if I pay more, I won't make a profit when I sell it. So the market pricing is this competitive system that involves the best estimate of many different businesses of how to use each and every resource in the market. So it gives us these numbers, which are called prices, which are some kind of a measure of the best alternative use of each and every asset. And so that uh, goes, when you have a, a single, a centrally owned economy, the central owner cannot bid against themselves. There's no way of uh, comparing alternatives that the people who are making these judgments know quite a lot about their particular business, the location, the production methods, and they're willing to put their own personal wealth on the line. But every time you order parts or raw materials or whatever supplies you need to make your product, there is a risk. You may not be able to sell it for more than what it costs you to make it. So there's this element of the personal risk and the people who are successful at that will make profits and will continue to be able to be active in the market by hiring labor and buying capital goods. Right. So that that was more or less, did that, uh, is that clear enough or any, anything more I should say about that? Well, I would just say, uh, just to kind of summarize, is that Mises's critique it stems from his identification of the fact that money prices ultimately reflect the subjective valuations of consumers in an economy, of, of the people that are participating in the economy, what people think things are worth. And the job of an entrepreneur, of a capitalist, is to anticipate what people are going to want. And they do that in large part based on the prices of the, the factors of production, the, the price of, cons of consumers' goods, interest rates, all things that are a function of a market economy. If you have a command economy, you don't have money, you don't have market prices, you don't have market established interest rates. So there's ultimately no way for the central sort of uh, Politburo or the commanders to decide what is going to be produced or what should be produced, which is why in socialist economies, you end up with an abundance of goods that nobody wants and demands for goods that nobody has produced. Yeah. So you left out one super important thing there. It is correct. The price of consumer goods result from the consumer subjective valuation. But the valuation of all of the intermediate goods, capital goods, which means transportation, warehouses, machinery, raw materials, energy, it's partly driven by the subjective valuation of the consumer at the end and partly driven by the role of each and every productive asset in the production process. So it's the production method is very important. And one of the things businesses right. do is they choose the production method. How is the, what is the best choice? Even if we could have two different ways of producing an identical pair of shoes, one uses the more energy and less labor. The other uses less energy and more labor. How do we compare those? We need to have some quantitative estimate of the impact of energy and labor 
on the cost. And that's where the, the different production methods, there's a technical area of price theory that's called, um, so I'm going to even attribution. We need to say, if I hire one more person based on my choice of production method, I can value that person at $20 per hour, or I can value a kilowatt of energy that runs a machine at $50. So the pricing of these productive assets takes into account the way that the productive asset impacts the production method of the good. And that's more, so it's not necessarily like uh, chemistry where you need two H's and an O to make a water molecule. Most goods, there would be many different ways that you could produce it. And Mises was largely concerned with how do we incorporate all of the productive assets at their most productive use. One of the problems with Keynesian economics is it's all focused on consumption and the consumer. And they think as long as people are consuming, that's fine. Well, hold on. Hold on one second. Yeah. Uh, Robert. Okay. Because you, you're right, but I, I, maybe I wasn't clear yeah. when, I, when I said consumption. Okay. Keynes believed that demand drives the economy in the yeah. sense that consumer demand, that if you just put money in the hands of consumers, you'll drive, you'll yeah. for economic growth. When I say that ultimately con consumption is the, is the end of all production and, and it yeah. ultimately it's the consumer values is people produce yeah. in order to consume. So when an entrepreneur invests, whether it be in goods of the first order, meaning, you know, right before consumption or, you know, of the lower orders and production goods, it ultimately is toward the end of satisfying consumer demand. And if, if and they entrepreneurs have to anticipate consumer demand. And now when you get down to if you're if you're creating factors of production, you would then have to anticipate what the guy who's going to buy from you, how much he's going to pay for it. So, but even his, ultimately it can be traced back to consumption. It's anticipating that, but you're right that it's about coordinating the, the productive sectors of the economy. And that is based on this. It's always boils down to the subjective valuations of market participants. That's, that's what determines prices. And that's why you, with the socialist calculation, without being able to have a market price to reveal the subjective valuations you have no way to anticipate what needs to be produced that's what i meant i'm not i wasn't saying that demand is what drives the economy and if you just oh, give no. money to consumers i get that i was leading up to uh, a point where i i did a google search how much capital goods are in the u.s economy and it was like 50 to 60 trillion dollars worth of accumulated capital so it's clearly really important what we do with that. Sure. You have to know wh wh where to send what, who to employ, who to produce and, and everything else. And that's what we need money for. Well, money prices. And you need money to have money prices. But so your argument is that AI cannot perform that function that the market economy does. AI cannot satisfactorily determine what needs to be produced. So therefore, the idea that these elites would be able to implement AI, let the, let AI plan the economy and serve their every need and every want, is it's just not realistic. So why can't AI do that? I think AI can do certain things that 
people in business have always used computers, will continue to adopt AI to help them with particular tasks. I read about a mining discovery company was using machine learning to help them decide which drill targets to drill. This will continue to happen. The idea that you could replace all of us with AI, it runs into this same problem that Mises said, identified that the AI is a single mind. It, whereas what drives the market is the differentiation of many different entrepreneurial viewpoints. The way these AI systems work, they get a large amount of training data. Like this language model, it's trained on pretty much the entire internet. And it kind of averages together all of the data into um, something that has similar statistical behaviors to what was found in the data. So this is why if there's some topic where most of what most people think is wrong and you ask an AI, it will probably tell you something that's wrong because it's just telling you statistically, here's what you're likely to hear in response to that question. So it's more like an averaging of everything. What differentiates each entrepreneur is their different way of evaluating productive assets. So the entrepreneurs are the outliers. The guy who ends up paying the most for a resource is that guy knows a particular way that, hey, I can use copper more productively, or I can use your services, Michael. I'm going to offer you higher wage because I see a way that I can use your services more productively. So it's kind of the opposite selection of are we selecting for an average view or are we selecting for a, a unique or differentiated view? Another argument I have against why AI cannot replace all of what entrepreneurs do in allocating resources is I don't think we really know what that is. It's not like there's this data set of Here's how you become a successful entrepreneur. And we can feed that into an AI and train the AI. One of the points I'm, I'm working on an article that talks about this is you hear a lot about central planning and can computers plan the economic system? That was even asked or suggested back in 1930. But what's an economic system does is not plan it produces things. In order to produce things, yeah, you, you need a plan, and then you have to execute the plan. And the execution involves a whole range of different skills that people have who run businesses about who to hire, who to fire, where to locate. All problems come up. Any plan you have of how you're going to produce a product, nothing ever goes according to plan. And a large amount of what makes people successful is ability to adapt to unforeseen circumstances and make a good decision. And these, what we consider a good decision, it inherently incorporates economic calculation because you're constantly deciding between alternative courses of action. Like, hey, I just spilled a, 
um, a drink, should I make a new drink? Or you know, if that's a good example, but in a, so in a restaurant, if you've ever gotten a steak that was a bit too rare, they will generally take it back to the kitchen and grill it a bit more and serve you the same steak because let's say $30, $40 worth of steak on your plate versus if there's a problem with uh, a drink, they'll pour you a new one because it costs them almost nothing. So economic calculation is a part of this problem solving process, but it's not like there's this big data set of economic production that we could use to train an AI. It's too diffuse and multivariate and not really even known what exactly that is. You know, as many businesses fail, which means that the owners of those businesses overestimated their own management or entrepreneurial yeah. abilities. Sure. And part of the entrepreneurial function is to anticipate, right? Anticipate what people are going to want, what, you know, what, where to, best to direct resources. And not only that, but entrepreneurs take risks and they have to know when not to take risks. But AI, it seems to me, would have no incentive. There, there's no fear of going out of business, <laughs> like you said. There's none of that there. So I don't know how it could, I, I'm very, I don't see how it could fulfill an entrepreneurial function, I, I guess is the, the best way I could put it. There's just too many factors involved that are human uh, factors that I don't think AI could satisfy. Now, someone might say, yes, AI can do that, but I, I don't think it can largely for the reasons that you've stated. The AI could help with doing certain things. Suppose that this company that's using machine learning to identify drill targets, suppose that's successful. Then what will happen is every other mineral exploration company will buy or license that software or where they think they can use it. And then it becomes part of the best practices within the industry. And it would no longer provide any particular competitive advantage to using it. This is the same way that everybody now uses software to keep their books. If you went back to far enough in time, the books were done on paper. As technology improves, we learn how to do things better. Best practices become things that everyone does. And the way the best practices are adopted, it's through the same entrepreneurial and competitive process where somebody has the freedom to enter the market, try something new. If it works out, at least for a little while, they'll have an advantage until everyone catches up with them. Makes sense to me. So all in all, how would you rate artificial intelligence? Is it a good thing? Is it benefiting us? Or is it something that's just too risky? Um, I don't think we know what are all of the ways the world will change. I think we're probably at the start of something new as people start to adopt these relatively new technologies. I remember writing about this a year or two ago where there was an article in the New York Times about a, a guy who founded a self-driving car company. The company went broke. He started a new company, which all it did was it enabled self-driving trucks to go back and forth on a road between a quarry and the other end of the road. 
they were able to put instruments on the road and put some kind of sensors on the truck, try to simplify the problem and the self-driving truck could go back and forth to the quarry. But he'd pretty much given up on the car could drive you across town. I recall a year or two ago, I was trying to change an airline ticket, talking to a bot and the bot did not on the website of the airline did not understand what change my flight was. So I thought a year or two ago, stuff is really far away. Then all of a sudden it became super awesome and effective. We haven't by any means digested how we're gonna use it. So I think it will change a lot of things but as people become aware of the limitations, it may be not as uh, big of a deal as some people think. Okay. Is there anything that I, I failed to ask or anything that you didn't get to say that you think is important regarding this discussion? Uh, there's one point you were talking about incentives and personal risk of loss. This yes. is something Mises has talked about that the, the the entrepreneur bearing losses or earning profits, that is a very important aspect of what drives economic calculation. Somebody starts a business or owns part of the business, it's either something they want to accomplish in the world or provide for themselves or their family or their future. Programs like these large language models, they don't have any continuous consciousness that extends over time. They spin up when you ask them a question and they remember the last 10 things or 2000 words that you've talked about. And if you go away, then they go away. So there isn't any uh, kind of there, there that wants things or plans or has a life or cares about its children or any of those things. There's no self, right? There's no self involved. It has continuity. That, that makes sense. Okay, uh, Robert, where can people find you? Where can they read your articles? Uh, most of my stuff is on the Mises Institute, Mises.org, and writing about some of these things and about COVID on brownstone, brownstone.org, most of my archive in those two places. All right. Thank you very much. Well, for now, this is The Rational Egoist signing out. I'm Michael Leibowitz. I would love to hear anybody's feedback on this episode, so feel free to leave it in a comment. For now, take care. Till next time.